Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. This obviously is a strange year, as we keep on saying, you know, and this is just affecting and impacting each of us so differently. Um, and I think my teaching tonight is not explicitly, you know, directed to think about what makes this year different than other years. Uh, I actually think that this is going to be some uh, Torah and thinking that will hopefully help us uh, enter the holidays um, with a, a new insight. And that's my goal. So my question is to begin. Uh, I thought it was going to be a little bit of a bigger group and maybe we would chat this. Actually, let's go ahead and chat if you're able to do so. Um, There's a little button underneath. Uh, the question is, what disposition or kind of character trait, but I even think more disposition, sets us up for a successful and meaningful Yom Kippur? Could be one word up to maybe three words, but what disposition or character trait, but especially disposition? So, and then I'll read through a, a few of these. So, Openness, openness to change, reflection, honesty, change and forgiveness. Or if somebody doesn't, is not able to chat because of the device you're on or you can't figure out the buttons, you can just uh, unmute yourself uh, and welcome to uh, uh, jump in and offer an insight. Humility, kindness to self. Well, th- that's one that uh, I-, I think often gets overlooked. Uh, empathy. And I think you can think of empathy to self and to others uh, as well in that answer. Beautiful. So um, I think for each of us every year, probably which uh, disposition uh, is a little different, right? And so I don't know where my head is this year, uh, sharing one of Eddie's answers. And where's Eddie on our screen here? There you are. Hi, Eddie. Thank you. Uh, not that that was the right answer. They're all right answers. Uh, but the one that I want to focus on tonight is humility. And for us, and the title of the class was something about you know, a hurdle. And my thought is, is that there are these hidden hurdles that really prevent us from being able to experience uh, humility. So I'm going to actually begin by looking at uh, Talmudic uh, teaching. I'm going to share my screen here briefly. In the Babylonian Talmud, uh, there's a section on page uh, 17 or so that goes through a number of different ways in which the some of the Talmudic rabbis ended their Amidah, their uh, standing prayer of silent devotion. And one of those uh, is actually uh, from Rava, who ironically is not known as somebody who is very humble. Uh, he had a few goals in life to be wise and Torah learned, to be humble and to be wealthy. And he admits that the humility was the one that he missed. Um, and it's sort of ironic then, or maybe it's not ironic. Maybe this is exactly why he does it. This is how he ended his Amidah. So Rava Batar Tzlote Amar Hachi. So after his prayer, and prayer in the Talmud always means the Amidah. Rava would say the following. And can everybody see the screen here? Great. So, my God, before I was created, I was worthless. And now that I have been created, it is as if I have not been created. I am dust in life, all the more so in my death. I am before you as a vessel filled with shame 
and humiliation. May it be your will, Lord my God, that I will sin no more, and that those transgressions that I have committed cleanse in your abundant mercy. But may this cleansing not be by means of suffering and serious illness. That's Ravah. It has nothing to do with the Yom Kippur, but then the Talmud concludes this one by saying, and this is the confession of Rav Hamnuna Zuti on Yom Kippur. And so Rav uh, Hamnuna Zuti takes Rav's teaching and said, I like that. I'm going to use this one on Yom Kippur. And so uh, if we could, Rebecca, can we unmute here for a second? Yeah. I would love to just take a moment and let's react. Does this sound familiar to people? Uh, does this uh, upset? Is it comforting? And I will uh, let the cat out of the bag by saying we've all said this before, if you've read the words of the Amidah on Yom Kippur. Um, thoughts, reactions, anybody? I can see people. Yeah, Rachel Green. I'm just saying it's like the old... The, first of all, I know I recognize this paragraph. I couldn't tell you exactly where in the Amidat falls, but I know I've said it multiple, multiple times. But what I'm wondering, I'm just thinking of the, the joke about, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I think that's, uh, and you know, it, look who thinks he's nothing, or he realizes this is what he struggles with. And in that moment of Yom Kippur, where the ability to actually be humble, not meek, not weak, but humble and see the needs of others and have real contrition, maybe he realized that is what he really needed. Um, other thoughts? Thank you, Rachel. Anybody else? Does anybody really like this? If you or anybody really, Bill, you don't like it at all. Tell me. <laughs> can we unmute you and you can tell us why you don't like this? Yeah, just press. I just asked you to unmute. Just press the little thing that comes up. Do you see it, Mimi? There you go. I think it's to my to my perception and, and my my take, it's overly dramatic and mm -hmm. unnecessary. Um, first of all, uh, the creator knows the character and the nature of the author. And I'm going to presume that the rabbi was not uh, as um, off base as he seems to intone, and therefore I think it's a false humility. That's my take. I don't think you're wrong, and it's an interesting challenge then to why the editors of our Mahsor for the last thousand plus years have included this word for word uh, in the conclu concluding paragraph uh, of the Yom Kippur Amidah. Because uh, it gets the attention that we're now paying it. Okay, so it's pedagogy that it kind of pushes us. It challenges and uh, maybe a little hyperbole or a little extreme for you, but uh, gets our attention. Other thoughts or responses or reactions? Ellen, please. And then Karen. So I don't know why, but this 
made me go to the saying of um, I am but dust and the world is created for me. Mm-hmm. And to be able to find that balance between the two, to understand our place in the universe and, and have humility and then to also enjoy as human beings those things that that may be not look as we are humble, but yet we are human. And so we, we go there and to be able to have that balance. Right. And I would say that a lot of the Yom Kippur liturgy doesn't reflect that balance. If you take it in the context of all of the high holidays, sure, you can find it. But I think a lot of Yom Kippur, you know, is taking us down. Um, and yeah. it is right here. Karen, please. I'm not sure I'm reading it right, <clears throat> but it says, <clears throat> so forgive me for everything that I've done, but hey, don't make me sick. And don't do the, you know, can we really ask for how we want to be cleansed? Not too seriously. Am I reading it wrong? No, you're not reading it wrong okay. at all. Um, I, I think that you know, Rava is also um, a famous author of a statement in uh, um, Masachet Brachot earlier uh, in Masachet Brachot, where there's a conversation about suffering is a um, sign of God's love, you know, which uh, on the surface, at least for me, I'm not going to project what everybody's theology for me uh, to hear that and accept that is distasteful. Um, and so he's the same author uh, who said that uh, earlier. And so I think if he accepts that that is an acceptable theology, is my Wi-Fi freezing? Am I okay? You're okay. Okay, good, because I kind of see my picture going in and out. So if he accepts that that's an acceptable theology, um, he's just saying, I don't want it to go in that direction. And so please allow me to you know, be cleansed and to draw close and without having your afflictions of love. And so, you know, we might not buy that theology. I don't. Um, I actually read that section of the Talmud quite differently. Uh, But um, he's the same author that said that. I, when I look at this, I, I picture like a fifth grader, maybe a seventh grader who says like, I was supposed to study all week and I only studied one day, but please let me get an A on my test because even though I should have gone through all of these things to give me an A on my test, I'm for sure not going to get one. So now I need to pray to make sure that you give me one. Like this last statement here that uh, I will sin no more, right? But that nothing that I do from this point forward should be that hard. I mean, just take care of me. I don't have to do anything that's that hard just so that you can kind of see me in a good light. Um, and so I'm, I don't know, in this particular way, it makes me think of kids taking a test but not having to study for it. And, and maybe a little bit honest for all of us when it comes to Yom Kippur. Yeah, 100%. Right? Yeah. Like, none of us is uh, studying perfectly or preparing perfectly, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, and so maybe this is exactly uh, where that uh, kid that's trying to you know, rely on God's uh, mercy and not uh, strict justice. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts before we move on? Because I think what I'd love to do uh, will be to kind of move from the Torah itself, you know, and to uh, share a concept from a book that some of you may know or not know, and then we'll come back and uh, mix it in with some uh, Torah from the Talmud. So 
whether we like that this exact language or not, I do believe that humility is one of the key dispositions uh, that leads us to a meaningful Yom Kippur. And it might be, you know, accepting, Bill, what you said, that this is a little extreme. It might be in the context, Ellen, of what you said, you know, that we have these two ptakim, we have these two notes that we really balance, you know, that I'm dust and ashes and the world was created for me. Um, and so we don't end Yom Kippur out of balance. Right. And then we kind of carry both of those with us throughout. But I'm kind of asserting today that I do think that humility one is one that at least I'm going to project a little bit. I think a lot of us are missing um, and uh, really down deep in our hearts. And so there's a concept uh, in the Torah of a michshol, uh, of these stumbling blocks that uh, we may not see. And in the Vayikra, um, in Parsha Kedoshim, uh, and that's what this... Uh, Verses from right here. So you shall not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. And here is where uh, I'm going to share this uh, secular book that was really influential uh, for my personal thinking, for how I think professionally and uh, spiritually, including how I prepare for the high holidays, that for me, for the disposition of humility and trying to be the best Joe Menashe that I can be, uh, there are these hidden stumbling blocks. Um, and one of them, uh, I really was just one of those like aha moments that you don't expect to always have in adulthood uh, came from a book that I originally heard. Uh, I think that was Dakar Kelter who uh, has a, podcast called The Hidden Brain, and sometimes if you listen to NPR, uh, he, I don't know if he still does, he had a short segment that he would share some of his social research, and he spoke about this book, I bought it, um, and the book is by an academician whose name is, uh, oh, excuse me, it's Shakar Vedanta, it's from NPR, the author's name, the academician is Dakar Kelter. Uh, That's what I was going to uh, say in the chat, was hidden brain is Shankar Vedantam. Thank you very much. You don't have this. this this, The whole point of this is uh, anti-ego. So uh, if you can correct me, it's just, it's only helpful, Rachel, please. Thank you. Um, And so this book, it's called The Power Paradox. And it's very much about a hidden michshol about a hidden stumbling block that we may not be aware that we're encountering. And to just sort of paraphrase the concept of this, that he you know, said that the, it's a, he's an academician who cites a lot of studies, but it's not an overly academic book. But he said whether it's schoolyards, boardrooms, uh, armies, you know, all kinds of situations that the sort of, and this is not political tonight at all. This is spiritual. That the sort of Machiavellian power uh, hungry type of person, will, and even like the schoolyard bully, only gains influence for a very short period of time. And that very quickly, whatever leadership you know, or following that they're able to generate dissipates. And those that are able to generate real leadership, real buy-in, real following, those are people that actually exhibit characteristics like empathy, awareness, listening, respect. It's sharing stories. It's being solicitous and asking stories. It's serving others. And um, 
and, and that's, you know, I think a lot of people, we could have a conversation about, you know, who are the leaders that we buy into? You know, what are those uh, traits uh, that allow us to feel connection uh, and real buy-in uh, and that will listen and honor someone? And that's the first premise of the book, but that's not the paradox. And here's where I think the book really gets interesting. And the paradox is that once we have that position of influence, of leadership, of however we want to say that we've got buy-in, whether it's the schoolyard, the boardroom, the PTA, the anything, that we sort of in our human nature begin to lose the very character traits that got us that influence. And, and that he then you know, talks about that you start to have an empathy deficit that there's impulsivity, there's a sense of entitlement, of exceptionalism, and that you, all of those character traits that bought you the real influence, you weren't the jerk schoolyard bully kind of leader, you were the really good leader that people bought into and that people really loved and, you know, people liked you for the right reasons and listened to you and engaged with you. And then there was this uh, inherent sense of entitlement. And, and one of the simple little uh, studies that he did uh, that I think it's just worth sharing because it's an easy one to remember. Uh, it was a typical psych exam that you see on a college campus. Uh, three students would come in. They were working on some policy thing for the university, and they were getting paid to be there. They knew it was a psych project. And on the way in, uh, they would say to one person that you're going to be the leader today. And uh, there are going to be a few times where we're going to need you to play a special role and uh, just, you know, be ready that you're the leader. And everybody knew who the leader was. About a half an hour into their work, the, somebody brought in five cookies on a little plate, chocolate chip cookies. And there were three people. These are college students, free cookies. Of course, they all eat one. There are two left. Who eats the fourth cookie knowing that not everybody can get one? Over half the time, it was the leader who was told at the door. Half an hour. That's all that went by. They were all, and, and it didn't matter gender, uh, didn't matter their sex. You know, there were no other factors that they were able to tease away. And so it was the person who had this inherent sense of entitlement because they were called the leader and then they actually, because they had videotaped all this, went back through and started to analyze how they ate. Who ate with their mouth open? Who ate spilling crumbs? And shocking, it's the leader again. And there are all kinds of studies in this book that talk about, you know, in the workplace settings, you know, who uses inappropriate language? Who makes inappropriate jokes? And it's the person who has that sense of entitlement, you know, to be able to do so as the leader. I'm going to read a couple sentences here, um, and then we'll engage in this, and then I want to throw some Talmud, and then we'll see if this uh, resonates for anyone or not. So the power paradox, how we gain and lose influence by Dr. Kelter. Empathizing, giving, expressing gratitude, and storytelling can be found in every social interaction. They are paths to achieving enduring power, whether between peers on a playground or between adversaries in a boardroom. Attaining power is simple in the abstract. Stay focused on the other. 
but the experience of power of having power also has ancient seductions in its DNA. It is accompanied by rushes of positive emotion. It brims with a sense of limitless opportunity and narrows a person's focus to rewards, goals, and pleasures. As these power-related feelings intensify, our focus on others fades. And then I'll just go to the bullets down below. So rather than empathize with others, we lose touch with what others think, feel, and think. Rather than giving, we take, often excessively, and in the absence of need. And I will tell you, I'm, I'm a snacker, um, and I'm now much more conscious of my role as the executive director at a summer camp or in our year-round office when even if I was the person that went out and bought the muffins, you know, to put on the conference room table before the staff meeting, uh, I, I used to just snack pretty uh, without – I think I probably – took more than my fair share. Um, and, and now I'm much more conscious. I know it's a silly example, uh, but one that I'm trying to train myself. Uh, so rather than dignifying others with expressions of gratitude, we undermine others with acts of instability. And rather than uniting with others by telling our stories of common humanity, we distance ourselves from those we believe uh, to be below us in arrogant narratives of our own superiority. And so... You know, I'll also just speak for a moment about being a camp director, that we're putting 18-year-olds in positions of unbelievable power and influence, right? I mean, they have uh, power uh, by virtue of size, you know, all kinds of uh, other settings, and they have kind of power and influence because these young kids will do anything and just worship, you know? And, and so that sense of being able to make the awareness of, for these 18 and 19 year olds uh, of that power, not being seductive and that power, not being, you know, one that's you know, taken in the in an inappropriate direction, but actually can reinforce the very values that, you know, give them real influence um, is a challenge. Um, and so I'd love to pause for a moment. Uh, here are some thoughts. I don't know who uh, knows Dr. Kelter's work. He's also done a lot of stuff on happiness, um, on affluence, how affluence impacts us. Uh, he's an interesting uh, psychologist and does uh, studies that get a lot of popular attention. Um, so I'd love some reactions to this. And then uh, we're actually going to look at a little Talmud and look at the one who is most powerful of all being God and see how God deals with God's power. And if there are any lessons for us uh, as we approach young people. So any thoughts or reactions uh, to this book? Anybody read this before? Know about it? Well, I would think, um, I always thought of it as having like power, fame, money. And then when people stop saying no to you, like when you never get a no, and then things just go haywire. Mm -hmm. This is Bob. I think this is more urgent in the last hundred years when our ancestors lived mostly in small villages. They knew a few hundred, maybe a thousand people. Um, they weren't, you know, we're living in a world of television and radio and social media 
and we know about the best of the best, the best basketball player, the best Talmud scholar, the best fashion designer, the best everything. I'm feeling like our age is making people feel unimportant Hmm. and they're compensating by trying to assert themselves, by trying to project whatever power they are, they have and puff themselves up. So again, Mm -hmm. I'm not a psychologist and I'm not Mm -hmm. an academic, but I just feel like this is growing more rampant I know there were people abusing power 600 years ago, but it feels like it's out of control right now. Bob, I think that that's absolutely astute and spot on. And the author would say that it's also being done by the people who made their way up by showing empathy and caring for others and listening. You know, it wasn't just the people that, you know, where the schoolyard bullies, like they never had it, right? But he's saying that there's something when you get to that moment that that's the michshol. That's that hidden stumbling block that we get to a place of too much ego, not enough of the humility and thinking that we're special and maybe we deserve, you know, this position, this stature, this money, this buy-in of people that are following us, you know. I'm saying almost the reverse. I'm saying that whether it's conscious or unconscious, you realize once you're the president of the conference of major Jewish organizations or you're the senator from a big state or whatever, at some level, you're the same person who you were when you were 25. And yet it's unsafe to show your vulnerability and some complicated distorted process happens inside of you Mm -hmm. where it becomes okay to exploit other people rather than admit it's like the Peter principle. Everybody gets promoted to one level beyond what they can comfortably handle. Mm -hmm. And and we're lucky that maybe 10% of top leaders maintain some sense of humility have someone who will speak to them honestly, have someone who is their mentor or spiritual guidance, even as they're the CEO of the company or the Mm -hmm. senator or the head of the rabbinical assembly. But 80%, again, I'm throwing numbers without any data, don't have that. Right. You're like, I, I can't ask for mentoring. I could when I was 25. I can't now that I'm 58. And so we're going to look to the Talmud in a minute to see if the Talmud can help mentor us a little bit. Merle, you've been waiting, and then Eddie. Um, so I'm just curious now, are you um, comparing this to the first? Are you saying, like, um, that we start off with some humility and then this power sort of goes to our head and we lose that, and then we go on Yom Kippur and we say that prayer and ask for forgiveness without really, I don't know, you were sort of suggesting before, I guess that without really meaning it or not. I'm not going to say, you know, where each of us is spiritually. I do think that there is a pattern in the modern world for a lot of us uh, to not get to a place of sufficient humility when it comes to Yom Kippur. And so 
you know, even if we do feel like Bill does, that those words are extreme. I do too. You know, I don't really say them entirely literally, but I do think that they're there as a, an aspiration or a reminder or a challenge. And so, yes, I am very much saying that uh, I think many of us in many years, as we approach Yom Kippur, uh, and it's not true. There are some years where we actually just need to build ourselves up, right? And so, like, I, I, each of us is going to be in a different place this Yom Kippur, uh, but I do think that there are these hidden stumbling blocks uh, that prevent us to be able to say, wow, I, I really need to make amends with, and I can think of people, right? Ellen, maybe we'll process one or two of them in the Ramah world uh, that I should really call before Yom Kippur and say, I, Joe Menashe, you know, as the executive director at Camp Ramah, um, wronged you, right? And, and need to, and might not get a positive response, but that takes, you know, there's, and, and so, you know, there are a lot of ways that I could lie to myself and come up with other narratives uh, because of my exceptionalism or being in this role or having the title rabbi or whatever other garbage goes along with that. But uh, I do think, Merle, to answer your question, the answer is yes. I, I think that there are, you know, these hidden uh, stumbling blocks that prevent us from getting to a place of sufficient humility for some of us for some years of Yom Kippur. Did you want to re- react, respond, agree, disagree? Well, I guess my, re- my response, I guess, would be maybe... I have to say, I wasn't so offended by the first prayer. I think I do sort of feel that way when I'm there on Yom Kippur, or even like during the Amida, I guess I feel like I'm having a conversation with God saying, mm-hmm. I may have done something that was upsetting or wrong that I may not even realize, and I am sort of asking for forgiveness for that. Um, so I guess I would say maybe some, there are some people that don't realize that they're taking that cookie that they shouldn't be yeah. taking um, so that they are going into Yom Kippur sort of unaware of maybe the yes. amount or the level of transgression. That's exactly that. right. And that's why I used it's the belief, right? That it's before a blind person, don't put a stumbling block because these are things that we are on. These are stumbling blocks that we are not aware of that we're bumping into and trying to, I'm trying to raise some consciousness. You know, it's certainly done so for me. Uh, Eddie, you had uh, wanted to jump in. Yeah, I mean, I had a couple of reactions. To some extent, you know, reading this makes sense. I mean, it goes back even to Machiavellian theory. You know, power corrupts absolute power, corrupts absolutely. Or, you know, the whole concept of hubris that you can find numerous examples of. Uh, but in terms of the relationship between this and the first one, it, it uh, ties into the discussions that I think every shul has been having, every institution has been having about white privilege and uh, the notion that we may be, you know, uh, enjoying a power that we don't even realize we have. Uh, and wronging other people in doing that. Eddie? Never connected that before. Thank you. Wow. Any other thoughts? 
I appreciate that. Uh, Ziggy, please. So, uh, to, for one to understand uh, that they have all these shortcomings, as pointed out here by this author, uh, that's a tall order. Because if you uh, truly understood that you have all these uh, negative traits, uh, then you would do something about it, I would presume. But many people that are drunk on power, they don't see those uh, those uh, negative traits. But then, And then the second thing is, when you stand before Hashem, you say, I may have done this, I may have done that. To me, uh, I think you've already missed the boat. Uh, Hashem knows. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. So uh, you, you say, I may have. So that means you're not really sure uh, of where you've transgressed, of mm-hmm. where you've done wrong, of where you've offended others, you hurt others. How are you going to ever fix that? You're waiting for Hashem to fix it for you. I mean, it's just, how does that work? That's, that doesn't work that way. So you got, and I guess the, the Musar system kind of helps you get there. Um, uh, but uh, you need to, uh, by yourself, you need to try and figure out how you, how can you improve yourself and not ask Hashem uh, to help you improve yourself because, that's, you know, that's not how it works. I don't think that's how it works. Mm-hmm. You need to work on yourself and be the best person you can possibly be. Okay. And the word lehitpalel, to pray, you know, is a reflexive form. And pilel also means to judge, right? And so it's to judge oneself. Uh, and that's the word for its pilot, or lehit palel, which is to pray. Uh, Rachel, I believe you had a hand up, and then no hand. Okay. So then it's 608. Um, let's look at how God deals with God's power. Um, I'm going to reduce everybody to the side there. And there's a passage in the um, Babylonian Talmud in Avodah Zarah, which uh, literally means idol worship. And as a section of the Talmud that's very interesting, that deals a lot with you know, how we interact with them, how we interact with the outside world. And even then, there was fear and there was trust. You know, and there were adversaries and there were friends, and you can feel the Talmud sort of like playing this out. And then there's a tangential conversation, which is what the Talmud does. Uh, They're talking about God's laughter and whether God laughs or not. And then this story comes out. And so, uh, and so, and I'm bringing this because, you know, God's the model of the most powerful. And how does God not uh, fall into the trap? of what Dr. Kelter is describing. Why doesn't God have the power paradox? And I do think that what I'm going to share here can potentially be a little bit of a paradigm for us for how we can prevent our own power paradox from happening. So, uh, but did not Rav Yehuda say in the name of Rav, there are 12 hours in the day. Three hours, and this is sort of a, if we're looking at God's calendar, we open up God's outlook, this is what we see. Three hours of which the Holy One, blessed be God, Yoshev v'osek b'Torah, like sits and studies or works with the Torah. So the first three hours of the day, God studies Torah. The next three hours, God yoshev v'dan et kol olam kulo judges the whole world. But in seeing that the world is liable to be destroyed, rises from the chair of judgment and sits down on the chair of mercy. So here we have God sitting as a judge, but actually perverting justice 
toward the side of mercy. Um, third three hours, God supports the whole world with food. Yoshev Vezan, like Hazana Takol, the end of the first paragraph of the Berkat Amazon. Um, Yoshev Vezan et Kol Haolam Kulo, um, from the very largest creature to the smallest one. And the last three, hour God, last three hours, God plays with Leviathan, which is a mythic big sea creature. You know, and then the Talmud goes on to debate whether God really does that. Did God still do that after the temple was destroyed? Maybe not. And so if God's not playing with the Leviathan, what's God doing those last three hours of the day? Yoshev umelamed tinokot shobet raban Torah. God is sitting and teaching children Torah. And so here we have, and I actually kind of put these all with uh, quotes from the power paradox. Um, to, to my mind, you know, God is guarding against the power paradox by grounding and humbling God's self by study. You know, nothing reminds us of what we don't know more than studying and God studying the very Torah that to the tradition, God wrote. God, you know, in terms of judging the world, is, you know, being so sympathetic uh, and aware of others that God's actually moving God's self from the position of true justice and what the world actually deserves to mercy. And then God is serving others by feeding the world. And then these last two, God's being playful, you know, and to be playful, you think about camp, you know, you can't play over, you have to play with, right? You can't stand over, you've got to get on the level, you know, it's a playtime and enjoyment and real engagement and connection, you know, or it's teaching and sharing and offering, you know, the best wisdom of what uh, one has for others. And so, you know, here we see God every day continuing sort of on that, that first the model I had of going, how do you gain that power and influence? It's by doing these very things. And God remind, was reminding God's self, you know, to do so uh, daily. And so I'll just quickly read this and then we'll get some reactions. We'll see if this works. Um, so first, the Yoshev Sekba Torah, individuals who are modest about their own power actually rise in hierarchies and maintain the status and respect of their peers, while individuals with an inflated, grandiose sense of power quickly fall to the bottom rungs. So, you know, you could say God wrote the Torah. God doesn't need to study it. uh, And yet there's a real modesty in God studying um, God's own book. So next, the judging the world toward mercy. And this is justices writing from a position of power crafted less complex arguments than those writing from a lower power position. Again, studying I mean, he was offering uh, um, descriptions of different academic studies. Um, A great deal of research has also found that power encourages individuals to act on their own whims, desires, and impulses. Uh, I was fascinated by this uh, idea that, you know, the more powerful judge uh, would often craft a less powerful or less complex uh, argument. But here we see God erring on the side of, you know, engaging toward uh, mercy. Third, that one might not have worked quite as well. I, I recognize that. The third uh, power paradox, um, God feeds the world. We give power to those who can best serve the interests of the group. And 
That's what God does to check God's own power. Uh, fourth, God plays with Leviathan. I've consistently found that it is the more dynamic, playful, engaging members of the group who quickly garner and maintain the respect of their peers. Such outgoing, energetic, socially engaged individuals quickly rise through the ranks of emerging hierarchies. And then the other fourth uh, quarter of the day, God teaches Torah to children, and we will be more poised to outsmart the power paradox if we broaden our our thinking and define power as the capacity to make a difference in the world, particularly by stirring others in our social networks. And so uh, for, for me to think of five takeaways is always too much. You know, I like the idea of, you know, for me in a given year approaching Yom Kippur, I'm thinking, okay, you know, what's one thing that I can try and focus on to check myself or to learn uh, as I prepare for Yom Kippur. Um, and I'm not going to share just yet, but would love to hear thoughts, reactions to this, uh, feedback. Um, I'll say that there's a school of management and leadership philosophy known as servant leadership. And this kind of reminds me a little bit of that, except from the Jewish lens, the people who write books about servant leadership don't really focus on teshuvah, on self-correction. They focus on other things, compassion and empathy, and putting others before oneself. But anyway, that's what this reminds me of. Okay, thank you. Rabbi Schatz, anything from you? Otherwise, I'll take it back and speak for a couple minutes, and then we can... It looks like Susan has something to say, but I also had something to say. So Susan, you go first, and then I'll say something. Okay. I wish I wasn't so tired. I'm on the East Coast, and it's getting to be my bedtime pretty soon. We're glad to have you. Yeah, thank you for joining. (laughs) But anyway, um, when we were talking about the power paradox, the first thing that came to my mind, I I worked for 30-plus years in a financial services industry, and very, very early on in my career, I was told something or learned something that to always – remember that the people that are doing some of the other jobs that where I was more in charge of things to always treat them with respect, which I would have done anyway from my own personal view, but to always, you know, do certain things to realize that you didn't, you don't have your position just because of you Mm -hmm. and to always consider the people working in the, in the computer room, for example, had, you know, you had to treat them properly. And um, this piece here uh, kind of reminds me of the need that we have in, I do a lot of organizational work now that I'm retired. And um, even though I serve on boards as a vice president, I, I realize that there are, I have to continually realize that people that are working under me, if you want to call it that, are the ones that are really doing the job and that really have to be honored and, and respected and brought up, you know, raised up from me to say, gee, look at the great job Jane did or Jody did. So that's how I see this. Thank you so much, Susan. And that resonates, uh, I think deeply, uh, for me. Um, and, you know, for Dakar Kelter and for God in this Talmudic passage, those kinds of actions are the very things that will keep us 
from tripping up on the power paradox. So thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Eddie. I, I have a sense also that on some of these, you know, essentially looking at some real world examples that, and from life examples and having, you know, worked uh, as an attorney and, and, and as a legal educator that, uh, for example, the first one, the first quarter, uh, individuals who are modest about their own power often don't rise in, in uh, the hierarchies. Uh, and those who are not modest about their power often get and stay in, in, in power for, for long periods of time. Uh, so I think there's, you know, there may be truth in it, maybe that's the way it should be, <laughs> and what we should aspire to, uh, but we can all find, you know, a- actual examples, including our current president. Um, and thank you for having, I'm on the East Coast, and thank you for preventing me from feeling compelled to watch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that could help. Thank you. It's good for my mental health. Yes. Okay, thank you. And, and look, I, I think we probably all have that reaction, especially in the uh, 2020 and for the last uh, three and a half, four years uh, that, you know, his theory that the Machiavellian grab for power, you know, doesn't work or doesn't last. It's not entirely true, you know. So uh, I think that that's certainly in the back of the mind of all of us uh, to some degree. Thank you, Eddie. Other thoughts? I was just going to add that I thought that your, the second one is actually Brilliant. I think that the two go so beautifully together. Um, and it reminded me of a moment when I was actually a Roche Da, your first summer. Um, and you were having a very busy day. No surprise there. And I came to you like six times throughout the day to ask questions about things that as a Roche Da, I could have probably been making the decisions myself. But because there was someone in power higher than me, I was coming to you and you said to me, Rebecca, we hired you to be the Roche Da. You make the decisions and if you think it's the right thing to do, it'll be fine. And if not, then we'll talk about it. And for that point forward, I think I realized it's similar here to the judge and to the people who have had less of that experience, that sometimes when you're in a new moment of power, you don't necessarily realize that you can rely on your own vices and your own morals and your own values and your own mind. Um, And sometimes you think that a person above you in that power, no matter how high up you need to get to find that person, needs to be the person to help you find that voice and that decision making. And so this idea that God judges the world with mercy is showing us that we actually need to be able to see other people as having influence on others and also people on God. And that in the just in the power paradox paradox example, that someone who has had as much experience within in that world can write more um more concisely and more to the point without worrying that powerful words will be what they need to hide behind to make their point. And so I actually, I think it's a beautiful connection and one that makes God feel much more attainable in terms of relationship than Mm -hmm. that higher up position that we always need to go to, to approach. 
Thank you. Uh, Ellen, you're going to jump in. This reminds me of my first uh, job out of college at a, a large ad agency, and my boss was pretty insane. But she taught me some very, very valuable things that have still stuck with me. One was don't be afraid to surround yourself with people who may be smarter than you or who fill in areas where you may have a deficit because she said they will always make you shine as a leader. Um, that was one thing. The other thing, she was very gracious about thanking people and also to the client saying, oh, you know, so-and-so did this. And she shared the spotlight, um, which I found as a, you know, 22-year-old really fascinating wow. because that wasn't my construct of what, uh, you know, a head of a department would do. And um, I think those things together really make um, someone who's very appreciated in a team and valued as a leader because they're not afraid to give the um, compliments out and the, you know, who did what in the team. And it really makes it a very um, worthwhile uh, collaboration for a leader to do. Thank you, Alan. That was beautiful. Um, 624. So uh, I will just sort of uh, bring it back to Yom Kippur. And as uh, Ellen said uh, earlier, um, there are the two notes. And so I'm sure for some of us uh, this year, uh, we're going to need to walk in and carry the note that says, the world's created for me, right? And this is a year that I need to build myself back up um, and uh, feed myself in that sense. Um, and uh, for those of us, that that's the bigger note we need to write this year. Uh, I, I hope that that is uh, meaningful and resonant. And for those of us that also need to carry, whether it's the small or the big one, uh, that says, I am dust and ashes. So when we get to that ending line of the Amidah this uh, year, you know, that speaks about this sense of you know, raw, significant humility uh, that we've been doing the work and we are at a place uh, of being able to honestly reflect on our struggles, our challenges, our complex relationships, and be able to move some of those things forward in a productive way so that Yom Kippur is not wasted and that we're emerging better and new um, people and Jews. And so uh, I, I'm uh, motivated and excited by God's model here. Uh, I think that uh, through study and play and serving others, and teaching, you know, that's how, you know, each of us can find those places of uh, humility inside so that we're prepared to be able to, you know, emerge from Yom Kippur um, anew. So thank you so much for the uh, insights that you shared tonight. Um, a real pleasure and a highlight for me. Um, I have to say, uh, each of us uh, has a strange COVID reality, and uh, mine has not included uh, a lot of this kind of uh, wonderful uh, Torah discussion. And so I really appreciate uh, the opportunity and the insights that you've all shared this evening. Thank you. And Rabbi Schatz and Temple Bethon, thank you so much for the uh, opportunity. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Bethon, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.